Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. We are currently going through a series titled, What You Need to Know, where we explore the primary biblical truths that our church believes, why we believe them, and how we live them out. Thank you for joining us online today. What you need to know, that's our sermon series. And what we're talking about are the doctrines that, that make us and shape our church, the chapel, and really the foundational doctrines of being a follower of Jesus. We believe in our, our doctrinal statement, it says this, we believe in one God, eternally existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three in one, co-equal, which is the Trinity. That's what we're looking at today. Now, A.W. Tozier in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, which looks at the attributes of God, and I highly recommend it. He's got one of those great first lines of the first chapter of the book. It says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Wow. He goes on to say, the history of mankind will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion and that man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. He concludes with this statement, worship is pure or base, good or bad, as the worshiper entertains either high or low thoughts of God. And so as we look at this, we want to enter, you know, our, our meta theme for our series says this, without a growing knowledge of God, his plans or his purposes, we drift. And as Christians, that's so true. When God gets small in our mind, when God gets absent from our mind, we drift. The importance of knowing God, it shapes us, who we are and how we live. And so today, we're not just going to talk about facts to know but a heavenly father to love who longs to be in relationship with us. And such a relationship doesn't just change our thinking, but it changes our living as well. Chuck Swindoll summarizes some great observations about knowing God. Here are some of them. It shapes our moral and ethical standards. Uh, knowing God directly affects our response to pain and suffering. Knowing God motivates our response towards the future uh, I mean, excuse me, towards fortune and fame, power and pleasure. It gives, us, it gives us strength when we're tempted. It allows God to be our focus of worship, and it prompts us to praise. A knowledge of God determines our lifestyle, really. It dictates our philosophy of living. It gives us meaning and significance in our relationship. It sensitizes our consciousness and creates a desire for obedience. Knowing God stimulates hope to go on regardless. It allows us, this knowledge of God allows us to know what to reject and what to respect. It is the foundation upon which everything rests. So we're gonna be in various passages today, a lot of them. If you have a Bible, you can join with me. We'll have them on the screen. We'd love for you to have a pen in your hand so you might jot down some notes as we talk about this. But more than anything, even across the medium of this video, my prayer, our prayer as a church, is 
you would experience God today. You can't just watch like, like a, a DIY video on YouTube about God and grow. You might know a fact or two, but all doctrine isn't just something to know in our head, but it's to move into our heart and it's to shape our lives. That's why we have the head and the heart together. Jesus said it this way. Whoever has my commands, he understands them, he has them, and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. I'll make myself known to them. So knowing and following God exp expresses our love for him, but we also get to experience him in ways that we maybe never have. So what are your thoughts of God? This past week, in my D group, we have groups in our church. We call them D groups, men and women, just in groups together. A little group of men, there are three of us in our group. We met together to talk um, about life uh, with God and following Jesus. Each week we meet and gather and we share the opportunity to talk about what we're learning in the reading plan, because we're reading along with that, what Bible verses we might be memorizing. And this week, we started with a time of confession, which is an interesting place to start, right? But one of the guys in our group mentioned that things were really going well, and he was able to kind of catch his breath in, his, in the pace of life, but that he was concerned that this season of peace was just to get him ready for something hard and difficult that was coming, uh, that this season of rest was, was just getting him ready for God's next difficult thing. And his confession was he was thinking about God wrongly, right? God is not just a joy stealer or someone just out to ruin life. or uh, the, He's the giver of good gifts. So in his honest confession, it, it made all of us consider how do we view God when things are good or when things are bad? James chapter 1, verse 17 says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. God isn't nice one time. He's nice. God isn't good some of the time. He's good all of the time. He doesn't change like the shadows that move throughout the day or move during the seasons of change. He is the same. So my prayer is that, is that you and I would grow in a growing way, experience God more and more as we know him, our heavenly father. So I'd just like to pause and pray for our time together and ask you to join me. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, I think we could all confess that we often think of you in, in wrong ways, ways where we sus are suspect of your goodness and we question your faithfulness and we, we doubt your love. Lord, would you forgive us when our thoughts of you are small and fearful? Help us understand you more today, Lord, as we consider your goodness and your grace May we understand that in a way that changes us. We desire to worship you in truth. So by faith, we say and, and declare you're awesome. And like Moses, who wanted to see you, we want to hear you proclaim, as you did to him, that you are compassionate and gracious, that you're slow to anger and abounding to love in love and faithfulness, and that you, that you 
are maintaining love for thousands of generations, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Would you work that through us and in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Here's, here's kind of, we're going to look at this in three parts. Uh, our knowledge of God, um, our understanding limitations, and our love of God. So first of all, knowledge of God is our, is our greatest pursuit to know the God of the universe. Now, there was a time in Israel's history where apostasy, people were leaving their faith, idolatry, they were worshiping something else, they had, they had um, perverted worship, they had moral decay. These were the conditions under which Jeremiah, the prophet of God, lived and ministered. An avalanche of judgment was coming upon the people of Israel, and Jeremiah was called to proclaim a message faithfully for 40 years that God was sending judgment if they didn't change. 40 years. And in response to his declarations and his sermons, this tender prophet of God experienced intense sorrows at the hands of his countrymen. They, they, they were oppositional. They beat him. They isolated him. They imprisoned him. But uh, even though he was rejected and persecuted, Jeremiah got to see many of the prophecies come true. The Babylonian armies arrived. Vengeance fell upon Israel. God's holiness and justice were vindicated, and it broke the prophet's heart. The people had drifted. In chapter 9, we get a glimpse of it, and I just want to share a few verses. Here's how it says it. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, that I had a desert and a lodging place for travelers so that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they're all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not just, it's not by truth, right? that they triumph in this land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Wow, the first three verses of chapter nine. A few verses later, Jeremiah says this. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom. Let not the strong boast in their strength or the rich boast in their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord, to have an understanding to know him. Oh, people that boast want to boast in I know God, and that changes everything. So our sub-point is that God is both infinitely powerful and intentionally personal. Those are, those are hard ideas and to kind of put together, right? There are many issues that are hard to put together when it comes to our knowledge of God. So that leads us kind of to our second main thing, our understanding of God. If, if knowing God's our life pursuit, we need to understand something. Understanding him, we have limited understanding. What we have is true understanding from the Bible, but it's limited. Romans chapter 11 says it this way. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. I love that verse. Dr. Ken Boa and J.I. Packer used a, a new word for me, uh, antinomy is the word, and it means against law, the law of reasoning. And they use this word to describe and identify truths that are revealed in the Bible that are beyond our level of human reasoning and comprehension. They are two facts we can't reconcile. The word antinomy is def defined in the dictionary as a contradiction between two equally uh, valid principles or between inferences correctly drawn about such principles, and they just don't fit together. For Christians, I like to say they're apparent contradictions, not ultimate contradictions. Here's how Dr. Boa explains it. God's revelation in the Bible is always self-consistent. The only problem is that human understanding is sometimes deficient. Sometimes. <laughs> if we could raise our thoughts to the level of God's thoughts, there would be no antimonies or no contradictions. That's from his book, God I Don't Understand. I recommend that one too. So I want to just touch on a few of these things that are really hard to get your mind around. The first one we stated in our doctrinal statement, the Trinity, that God is one and also three. So the Trinity, it talks about God's person. The Trinity, Trinity, of course, is it's not a biblical word. It's not in the Bible, right? Neither is triunity or trinal or uh, substance or essence or these words that we often use to help us describe the Trinity. Um, but, but the Bible clearly states that God is one God, a monotheistic God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, this great verse that Moses taught the people as they were headed into the promised land. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? That says it all. That was the, that's the great Shema. The Hebrew word for here is Shema. The great Shema of the Israel, of people of Israel is, is that verse. But in the first chapter of Genesis, we are introduced to the idea that there may be more going on. There may be a plurality in the Godhead. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. And he goes on to explain creation. Let us uh, create mankind in our image. There seems to be this hint of plurality going on. There are other verses, and we can't go through all of them, but even Jesus would uh, tease out this idea in talking with the Pharisees. He wanted to point out his own divinity, implying a plurality of the Godhead, and to do so, he used Psalm 110. Now, this is recorded in Matthew's Gospel in the 22nd chapter. Here's what it says. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Of course, by this they meant he would be descended from David. But there's more. There's more being pushed in here. And Jesus presses it. And he says, he says to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, which we discussed last week, that this is inspired, how is it then David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? 
right? In other words, this descendant is actually more than just a, a normal descendant. He's Lord. He's divine. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. It's a, it's a mic drop moment. In other words, this is how the passage would read. The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son, sit at my, God the Father's right hand, until I put God the Son's enemies under God the Son's feet. There was no talking after that. But Jesus points out there's more in the Godhead. He points out that he actually is divine, uh, divine as that Messiah. Now, in describing the beautiful uniqueness and the divine order of a congregation of Christians. Paul calls it the body of Christ, and he appeals to the work of the Godhead, the, the, the Trinity, in describing how it's put together. You see, the, a local congregation is to express Jesus's life through their life and beautifully through how they work together using different gifts in concert with one another to glorify God. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but all in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Throughout the New Testament, Lord is all, refers to Jesus, while God usually refers to God the Father. And then we also had you know, the spirit there. So the Trinity is one of these things that's, you, you, you have to live with it kind of intention. Uh, also is God's glory. It's such a lofty idea. It refers to his presence. And it's really hard to, the mystery of the glory of God is really beyond understanding. It, it, it means that the infinite is existing at times within the finite. <laughs> Right? It describes God who is above and outside of time and space, but entering into time and space. And I guess if God created time and space, he can do that. And I love the way Chuck Swindoll puts it. He says, don't try to unscrew what is inscrutable. <laughs> don't try to undo it. It's just too much. It's beyond us. Now, here's one that everybody that's a follower of Jesus is going to bump into. The sovereignty of God. This one talks about God's plan. And the Bible speaks clearly that God is sovereign over all things. One of the greatest verses of God's sovereignty is out of Numbers 23, 19. It says this, God is not human that he should lie. Not human, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he not speak and then not act? Does he not promise and then not fulfill? All that God has pre-planned is as good as done nothing can change it. There is no authority above God, right? However, just as biblical a doctrine as divine sovereignty is, so is human responsibility. For example, there isn't, um, Romans 9 doesn't make sense because it talks all about divine sovereignty without a Romans chapter 10, which talks about human responsibility. Here's the, here's the amazing thing. God carries out his all-inclusive plan by a variety of means, including, and mysteriously so, our choices. Romans chapter 10 appeals to, you know, our will. It says this, 
As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Anyone, everyone, excuse me, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls, we have to call on the name of the Lord. Now, there have been many fruitless efforts to try to resolve this tension, the sovereign human responsibility and timony, right? These efforts have divided people into painful arguments because people refuse to let God be wiser um, than they are and to let, let his word just stand. They insist on over-highlighting one side or the other. Now you may ask, okay, wow, why does it matter? Well, let me give you a give you a place where it matters. There are lots of places, but I want to give you a couple. The first one is prayer, right? If God isn't sovereign, then there's no point in praying because he's unable to answer most of our prayers. And if people don't have responsibility, there's no point in praying because nothing we ask or do will affect God's plan in the least. But if both are true, somehow, you know, that we don't fully understand, we we can still pray with confidence that God hears and acts in ways that are in line with his sovereignty and his plan. The other issue where it matters is salvation. And Christians have had endless arguments about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and man's responsibility. We're going to spend an entire Sunday on this in a few weeks. But I love the way God says it to Isaiah and through Isaiah to us. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts, those are God's, God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So it's, it's beyond us. But briefly, I'll just point out that because of the sovereignty of God and salvation, everyone who says yes to Jesus, trusting him for salvation and forgiveness, can have the assurance that they, of their salvation. This certainty comes from the fact that salvation is neither obtained nor maintained by human effort. Since no one deserves it or earns it, eternal life must come by grace through faith. Nevertheless, God will never force anyone to believe in his son, Jesus. Now, free will is still a reality, and all people are responsible for accepting or rejecting the revelation that they've received, right? As wonderful as a gift salvation is, if God forced it upon everyone, he would eliminate human freedom. So, just touching on that. Here's, a, here's another one of these things that our, our understanding is limited. His majesty, which speaks to God's position, right? It often called, it's often called the majesty. It's the awesome presence of God who is unseen and maybe will remain unseen by us through all eternity. We not, may not fully understand the majestic position that he's in, the glorified state, yet he is there. We believe he is majestic, and as such, we bow before him. Hebrews chapter 1 says this about Jesus in the presence of the majesty. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. You can begin to see that God, infinite and eternal, cannot be fully known but what is finite and temporal, right? God is revealed in the Bible truly, but not fully, because he is beyond us. So even, even if our understanding is limited, knowledge of God, our greatest pursuit, understanding God, we have limited understanding, but what is what does he want us to, how does he want us to respond? The God who reveals himself, our response is to love him. Loving God is our ultimate response to him until we know what about him. Again, going to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, he says it really clearly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Moses is saying, love him all out, with all, with all, with all, with all that is in you, all your heart, that's your, that your inner person, that's yourself, that's your seat of thought and emotion, your consciousness, your, your courage and your understanding. Love him with all of that. Love him with your your soul, your, 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 your life's force, right? Your, the immaterial part of you, <laughs> the seed of your desires. Love him with all of that. Love him with all of your strength. That's your, that's your energy. That's your power. That's your devotion. All of that is to be on him. And what, what does it look like when we love like that? Sometimes I think it's easiest to see love when the circumstances are most difficult. That's when you can kind of go, oh, there it is. For example, I was with a man and his wife not long ago, uh, walking through an outdoor a shopping center. And she had been ongoing, uh, undergoing cancer treatment. She was fragile and weak. She could hardly use her, her right arm. Then uh, that's where she carried her purse. So her loving husband, carried it all day. Everywhere we went, he made sure that this large, beautiful bag was hanging on his arm, right? Yeah, people stared. However, if you looked closely, what you saw was love and the depth of commitment in the very difficult time of their life. So difficulties often show us. And I say that because the Psalms are full of difficulty right? And, and that's where, say, with God and us, sometimes it's in the difficult places that love is really shown. And so that's why I want us to look at Psalm 31, the Psalm of David, who's in great need, right? It's a prayer from, from, from him, and he, he's despised, he's defamed, he's persecuted. He's in, it's a difficult time. And this is much of David's life as it's represented in the book of Psalms, in Psalm uh, 37, in Psalm 18, and Psalm 46, which are all part of our reading plan. They include uh, many of his prayers that grew out of such situations. And so in, in the presence of this affliction, he exhorted, right? He exhorts us to love the Lord 
and be strong because God is going to protect us from man's evil plan. David explained that he had learned this truth and he had committed his life into the hands of the Lord when his foes plotted to kill him. Here's what it says in the first four verses. In you, Lord, I've taken refuge. Never, let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to rescue. Be my rock uh, of, of fortress. Be the strong fortress to save me since you are my rock and my fortress. For the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. We run to him, we hide in him. He is a God in whom you can put all of your hope, your dreams, your failures, your tears, all of your love. That's what we see here. And call out to him, deliver me, pay attention to me, Look for his guidance, rely on him, and don't miss the focus of this rescue. It is for the sake of God and his reputation. And that's what love does. It forgets self and it's concerned about another. And in this difficult time, David's deeply in love with God and he's in deep trouble. But he says, God, I want you to rescue me according to your righteousness. Work in my life in a way that honors you. Wow, that's strong. A few verses down, he just says, be merciful to me, God, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak because of all my enemies. I am in utter contempt of my neighbors and the object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street flee from me. Oh, even with his love and his confidence, he's in this grief and this suffering. Hmm. Have you, have you ever been in this kind of distress? That is, you know, that's when it's hardest to love, isn't it? That's when it's hardest to trust the Lord or really anybody. This is when it's really difficult to love. Grief and anguish are expressions of total consumption here. David says he's been, this has been the case, not for a few weeks, not for a few months, but for years. This is a total and complete anguish of heart. And he's still loving God. And it's pulling him through this grief. A few verses later, it says, Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and the object of storm of my closest friends. Wow. That's difficult. Feeling forgotten. Have you ever felt forgotten, rejected, put on the street, and left for dead? These, these words are potent. They're powerful. They're, they're, they're a raw expression of what it feels like to be totally abandoned with terror on every side, like you're surrounded by a pack of wolves, pacing about, waiting for the perfect moment to attack and destroy. And then in verses 14 and 15, the psalmist says this, but I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. 
he makes this great action. He makes this great decision. You are my God. That's a statement of love. That's a, that's, it's not you are a God. You are the God. You are my God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to entrust all my anguish into your hands. Now, that's what love looks like. That's what, that's what a complete love for God begins to look like. There's trust. There's, there's, a, there's honesty. There's, there's this, there's this uh, crying out to him. And, and those people who, who just love God fully, they're going to experience his power in unique ways. Now, let me give you an illustration that might help you. Maybe not, but it helped me. Think of a car battery. Car battery has these little, you know, terminals that stick up and the cables are attached to them. If those cables get loose, then the current of electricity gets weakened, right? But if those cables are tight on the terminals, then all the energy of the battery flows through it. And so it is with our connection with God. When we say, I'm loving you no matter what, then we begin to experience his power in a completely different way than if we just hang on loosely. That's why we say, God is worthy of all we are and all we have. Just a few observations from Psalm 31 and really the other ones, and that is when we truly love God, we experience his power. And when we experience that power to deliver, our fears begin to subside. That's what love will do for us. Trusting and loving the Almighty God will shrink our fears and they will disappear. I heard someone say it this way, what you're going to discover is God is sufficient. And then you'll discover that God alone is sufficient. The Bible declares that perfect love casts out fear. God says to us, uh, love me, receive my love. And when you do, your fear will evaporate. When we truly love God, we receive peace and forgiveness from him. Our guilt and shame is relieved. Peace that we don't understand floods over us. Forgiveness, we feel it deeply. Our guilt is gone. Our shame is removed. When we truly love God, when we love him and hold on tight, that's our life's response. And we, we begin to feel like his presence in times of affliction. And you know what? If you've ever had that experience, then your faith is strengthened and you find yourself empowered. So loving God is, is huge. That's why we say, yeah, let's, let's know God, pursue his purposes, and it's going to make a difference. We make a difference. It makes a difference. I want to close with, I want to close with the idea of God the Father a little more pointedly. For many, many people, considering God as a father, their first filter is their earthly father. And so many people in our country have a deep father wound. They, they've lost their father. They don't know their father. They never met their father. He left or abandoned them, or they were hurt deeply by their father, or they were just unloved and rejected. And God wants to reestablish a better idea of God the Father. And Jesus, he painted a picture of God the Father in the story that's often uh, entitled The Prodigal Son. 
about a son who leaves and spend all, spends all of his inheritance in wild living. Timothy Keller rightly describes it as the prodigal father, not the prodigal son. Prodigal just means wasteful, reckless, extravagant. And if you've been a recipient of God's love, then you know how lavish it is, how it feels so just over the top. Now, here's the story. A man had two sons. The younger son wanted his inheritance early. That's like telling your parents, hey, would you drop dead? And so his dad gave him it. He left with all of his inheritance and he squandered it all in wild living. And this left him destitute. His actions brought him brought shame on him and his family. And then in that moment, he decides to return home in Luke chapter 15. It's where the whole story is. How do you think God the Father responds? It's very um, jolting. He runs to the Son. My favorite verse in the Bible, Luke 15, 20. So he, that, that son that had squandered all of his inheritance, got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. It's just an unbelievable picture of the heart of God for humanity. Many people today need to turn to God need to reject their current direction and turn to God and leave behind that, that old stuff. Reject it. Turn to God. And what you'll find is a heavenly Father looking for you to turn. I just love that. And what you'll find is a heavenly Father that comes to you. And now the story unfolds that he kisses his son, he brings him home, he changes his clothes, he kills the fattened calf, and he throws a party. But there's an other son. There's an older son. And all of this makes him angry because he had done everything right. He didn't take his inheritance. He had served his father. And he is so angry. He goes outside of the house and he won't come into the party. And what does the prodigal father do? What does the lavishly loving image of God, the, the, the God figure do in this? Well, it says in verse 28 of chapter 15, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. God went to him also. God went out to him. And many, many of you are angry with God, right? You've forgotten that he's good, that he's waiting. Like my friend, you need to confess a wrong understanding of him. Too many times we can, we can begin to think God owes us. We, we can begin to think, and hey, we did everything right. You owe me. And don't waste your love and affection on this. But the heart of God is big. For those that run away and come back, for those that are angry and struggling outside, God's heart is big. And I wonder, you see, God wants the older son to, to, to understand his heart for him too and to come on home. I wonder if that's what you need to do. God becomes our heavenly father when we believe in his son. Will you? Will you? Thanks for being with us today. Let me pray for us.
as we end. God, we want to know you. We know we can't know everything. We struggle with that. But I pray that we would love you. I pray for those that understand themselves as, a, as the wayward child that wonder if they can come back, that they would turn to you and find you waiting. I wonder about those who are angry and frustrated. They've tried to do everything right and life is still hard, that they might turn and find you waiting for them. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you that you, you don't hide, but you, you actually made a way for us in Jesus. And we thank you for him. We thank you that we can call you our Heavenly Father. And we pray through the powerful name of Jesus, who made it all possible, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Thank you so much. God bless. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.